And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. And welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn where... Well, we kind of talk about all kinds of outrageous things over here. And if you kind of are monitoring mainstream news, we're going to talk a bit tonight about some very important mainstream news. You may have noticed that the mainstream news is becoming as equally bizarre and extraordinary and astonishing as the kind of stuff that we used to talk about uh, only on this kind of show or when I would do art show, Coast to Coast or George or um, whatever. Um, anyway, um, uh, Kintia is going to be joining us, but apparently PG&E says there's a power outage for the entire block in which she lives till around midnight. And she's one hour behind us, so that's like uh, three hours. So fortunately, she is going to be, I think, on her phone. We will find out very shortly. We have a very intriguing show tonight. I mean, this is kind of like from the show we did two weeks ago, in which I replayed uh, for reasons that I really didn't want to have to do it, but my infrastructure was also very bizarre uh, last weekend. Fortunately, this week it's been kind of boring, normal, super weather, not too hot, not too cool. Uh, daytime, it gets up right around 80. Nighttime, it's gone down to the mid-50s. We're at 6,500 feet. You can see stars that you can never see anywhere else. Except maybe, maybe, maybe in mid-ocean. Anyway, enough background. Um, what we're going to be dealing with tonight is kind of like the B.C. A.D. comparison that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Because, um, you know, two, three weeks ago, on a Wednesday afternoon, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration held their first public meeting relating to UAP, which, of course, is the new buzz uh, acronym for UFOs. Except when the Pentagon has been talking about it and writing about it and holding briefings about it, the UAP is an attempt to kind of politically clean up a term which has fallen into incredible political disfavor over decades, i.e. UFOs, unidentified flying objects. So the new buzzword that has been kind of hatched by the Pentagon and the Congress and some of these new uh, pieces of legislation which have been signed into law in the last couple of years has changed UFO to UAP, standing for Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. And then last year, the Congress got involved again, and Senators uh, Rubio and Gillibrand, who in the Senate are kind of spearheading this uh, transformation, this rolling disclosure that we're now definitely in. And we're going to deal with some of the weirder political aspects of this tomorrow night when we do a show that takes us way, way back. But we'll get to that in a moment. So tonight, what we're going to do is kind of leap ahead in the story, and then tomorrow night, we're going to do a retro kind of show, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute. So in the last couple, three weeks, the background, the political background, the, the movements in Washington, the movements on Capitol Hill, the way the agencies are dealing with this remarkable 
phenomenon, which has been part of our um, lexicon and our experience now, at least since the 40s. You know, 47 was supposed to be the big year. Of course, if you're even up a little bit on the field, you know that UFOs or aerial weirdnesses, saucer-shaped things that uh, do not go bump in the night, that just kind of flit by without making sounds, they've been with us a lot longer than uh, the last 70 years. In fact, there's a very famous tapestry called the Bayou Tapestry, which celebrates the uh, invasion of England, the Norman invasion. And on it, there is a comet and a really great classic-looking UFO. So from those who have studied this field much more extensively than uh, I have, um, this phenomenology of something circular flitting around in the skies long before we'd created airships or aircraft, etc., it's been with us for a lot, if not most, of our history. In fact, I think there's even some hieroglyphs or cape paintings somewhere which shows disc-like objects hovering in the sky. I'm, I, I won't bet the farm on that, but I'll bet someone can send me a link and, and uh, confirm that my memory is not totally addled on the subject. Well, anyway, two years ago, maybe, no, I'm sorry, last year, the the latest congressional legislation devoted to UAP formally changed the meaning of the acronym. It went from unidentified aerial phenomena to unidentified anomalous phenomena, which covers everything. I mean, that's what science looks at, anomalous phenomena. If you keep finding the same old, same old, same old, you know, you're not cutting new ground, you're not breaking the trail, you're not advancing the frontier, you're not pushing back the boundaries between knowledge and ignorance, as Rod Serling would have said. Um, but UAP now officially stands across all U.S. government agencies for unidentified aerial phenomena. And as we have woke uh, kind of to say around here, um, that opens up a doorway big enough to fly the Enterprise through. <clears throat> because if you find an ancient city lying on another planet, like Mars, well, that's an unidentified, by mainstream science, anomalous phenomena. And then you approach it with criteria of scientific study, which, of course, going back to the Sagan rule, you start with geometry. Remember Sagan's famous quote, intelligent life on Earth first manifests itself in the geometric regularity of its constructions. So that's your rule of thumb. If you take a look at another planet and you find startling rectilinear geometry repeating and repeating and repeating, even if it's broken and eroded and damaged and partially you know, buried in landfills, et cetera, et cetera, or earthquakes, rocks, mountains falling, talus slopes, whatever. If you can discern regular geometry, you got it. Because all we know of in terms of our background experience in looking at intelligent artifacts on Earth from space, from orbit, going back to Sagan's first experiments looking at the Tyros imagery, the first crude weather 
satellites that were put up uh, back in the uh, 60s, which had uh, very crude Viticon cameras, not uh, solid-state CCDs like we have now. Even those cameras turned up evidence of geometry on Earth, uh, indicative of intelligent design, and Sagan even identified where they were. They were in a uh, a midwinter Canadian forest, the same forests that are breezily burning down this year, and it was the crosshatch rectilinear pattern of the logging roads that the companies had created to drag out the timber because they can't, you know, they, they got to have a way to get them out and it's by truck. Some places very remote, they use helicopters, but that's very expensive. So what Sagan and one of his grad students did is to look through the Tyrus imagery, Tyros um, imagery, and found this kind of like a crosshatch in the middle of a bright uh, area with dark trees indicating the geometric regularity of the logging roads. He did not find, by the way, the Great Wall of China. He did not find on the limited resolution Tyros imagery Los Angeles or New York or London or Paris, whatever. But because the scale of the logging roads was much bigger, he was able to pick those out, publish them as part of um, this paper on how you would use spacecraft and satellites to look for intelligence on other planets, starting with hint, hint, Mars, one of his favorite places. And so we were all, as the the saying goes, off to the races. Well, you carry that motif, that model, that idea, all the way through now to a couple of Wednesdays ago, when one of the NASA scientists on this special UA panel, which was convened to recommend future research actions to the administrator of NASA uh, this fall. And they had 16 members, and one of them is a very well-known NASA scientist. He's been part of many, many missions to the outer planets and the inner planets and um, has been an advisor uh, way back to the Apollo program, I believe. Uh, And it turns out that he made the perfect teaser statement at this UAP NASA panel a couple weeks ago. He sat there and he said very, very calmly, and I'll read it directly from from our uh, banner for tomorrow night, which of course, uh, I gotta do a couple clicky things here. Come on, computer, don't let me down. Okay, we're, there we are. Finding extraterrestrial artifacts in our own solar system is at least now scientifically plausible. And of course, that has changed everything. Because the conversation we're going to have tonight about art discovered by one of my guests, Jonathan Womack, not only on Earth, ancient earthen art, geoglyphs, massive carvings and reshaping of the landscape by some kind of intelligent beings or artists or dimensional personas or extraterrestrials or whatever they turn out to be, and it's not an exclusive list. You could have more than one cause. Remember, two things can be true simultaneously. That now has been found by Jonathan's very interesting eye and perceptivity. 
on other places in the solar system, starting with the moon. So this is going to be our conversation tonight. And we can have it because NASA, a couple, three weeks ago, legitimized the whole field with a single statement by Dr. David Grinspoon, the idea of ET artifacts, meaning intelligently designed architecture, ruins, machines, artwork, all of it, elsewhere than Earth, is now, per NASA recommendation to the administrator, which will be formalized in about uh, eight weeks this fall, that recommendation has now made the study of extraterrestrial intelligent beings, leaving artifacts and architecture everywhere they go, a perfectly, totally centrist, mainstream, scientific discussion. We have truly transmogrified from, you know, the late night last uh, uh, story in the uh, 11 o'clock news, the, the one with the giggles and the punchline. We have graduated to another, well, practically another dimension, certainly politically. So um, let me introduce, first of all, tell you who uh, is going to be on the show tonight. We're going to have Jonathan Womack who is um, an artist and a publisher and also has done extensive work in what we call the Psy Sciences. These are um, hyperdimensional inquiries, including out-of-body experiences, um, telepathy, telekinesis, uh, clairvoyance, all, all that whole cadre of not accepted yet in mainstream science studies. That's kind of what Jonathan has done for literally decades since he was he was a child, and part of that has to do with his own personal out-of-body experiences. But grafted onto that is a left-brain, metonymic, scientific approach to how do we know that what we're seeing, what he is seeing, is not just projection of his own very rich um, imagination. Oh, have I have I told you that he also writes novels, and he's got you know, probably a half a dozen now uh, to his credit. And we're gonna, you know, do some name dropping. We're gonna drop a couple of the titles so you can go and find them and read them. Um, some of them are quite good. I have not read them all, so I can't say they're all quite good. But uh, the ones I did find, and he sent me, yes, they're definitely uh, at the level of where you keep wanting to turn the page. Uh, the other uh, guest we have tonight is Georgia Lambert, who is our resident metaphysician. I, I keep saying that what you probably need to do is to go and click on, on her bio, which is not actually connected yet. So that, that's a little thingy that we have to fix. Um, the, the main reason why Georgia and I hit it off is because she approaches this from the sacred side of the tracks. She worked for over a decade with uh, Manly Hall there in Los Angeles, who, be, who created a center which, is like in the 40s and 50s and 60s, was kind of like the uh, metaphysical center of research in the United States. Uh, she's done a whole bunch of other things, and when we get her uh, uh, bio linked up there, uh, you'll be able to look at that. And then the last but not least person tonight that's going to join us is our own Kinthea, who with me created this whole field of extra 
extraterrestrial artifacts investigation when I um, gave her two photographs uh, taken by the the uh, Viking spacecraft from orbit of Mars of a region called Sidonia, and I gave her two uh, enlargements of this uh, feature lying there looking straight up, you know, measuring about a mile, mile and a half, you know, from from crown to chin of a extraordinarily human-looking face lying there in the Martian desert in the region called Sidonia looking straight up at the stars at space. And Kintia, much to her chagrin, accepted the photos <clears throat> and thereby changed her entire life. Well, we're going to get into all of that tomorrow night with uh, John Brandenburg and Mark Carlotto. Um, it's kind of like putting the band back together because we're going to take everybody back in the Wayback Machine tomorrow night to where the investigation of actual physical 3D artifacts on worlds other than the Earth really began, which was back in 1983 with the first independent Mars investigation at SRI. So that's tomorrow night. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to leap ahead because based on the extraordinary amount of evidence that I have acquired and researched and many of the other members of the Enterprise Mission imaging team, people like uh, Tim Saunders and Keith Morgan and, uh, of course, Kentia and uh, Robert Morningstar and uh, am I forgetting people? Yeah, of course I'm forgetting people, uh, but some of them will be with us tomorrow night. We have now amassed a huge and independent set of overlapping data showing unequivocally that there are ruins by someone or maybe more than someone that NASA has imaged and other national space missions have imaged all over the solar system. And so we're really in AD because all we've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for has been for officialdom to kind of recognize well, hey guys, this is this is a real science. And that has now occurred. It's all over really, but the shouting and the the you know, pen on the paper and the official announcement of the NASA offices, one of which we'll be looking at with all of the modern tools at in, in their possession, and I'll kind of define that as we go through the morning, um, at an extraordinary database which is NASA's which has been acquired over decades of a vast variety of solar system bodies and objects and planets and moons on which from our completely independent studies and many others all over the world. I mean, we basically began the cottage industry, it's obvious now. All of that now must be reassessed in light of Grinspoon's very famous phrase that looking for ET artifacts is now scientifically plausible. Will Katie bar the door? Because boy, are they going to come up the curve rapidly with extraordinary insights into, oh my, those guys were right. Now, of course, I don't know whether they're going to admit that we were right. There is some feeling on the part of some researchers, particularly Carlotto, that NASA is going to try to own everything and claim that they discovered all this stuff. And We'll have that discussion tomorrow night. 
But tonight, I want to introduce this as a backdrop of what's going on in the real political world of Washington, where in this nation, things, uh, big things get decided. Because this conversation is now taking place in a political atmosphere where looking for E.T. ruins, and I think even more interesting and important, looking for E.T. artwork, and that's a long, interesting discussion, is coming to the fore. It's legitimate. It's been legitimized. And so what John was involved in just a couple of weeks ago has now been transformed in terms of background to where it's one of the things that we can legitimately pursue as these expanding spheres of inquiry spread out, according to Grinspoon, all across the solar system. So without further ado, let me go to a couple of my items and I will uh, bring on my my guests. Uh, Item number one. Now, this is something which, of course, whether you're a a Trump fan or you're not a Trump fan or you're in the middle, this is just history. This is obviously requires some kind of, you know, mention. And it requires specific mention because of something that I have found in the actual indictment. President Trump. Um, on Tuesday, the 13th of June, was formally indicted on federal charges for taking and keeping box after box after box, hundreds and hundreds of documents, if not thousands and thousands of documents which are not technically classified, but which, of course, under the Presidential Records Act, Uh, belong in the National Archive for the American people and not in some room or bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. Everybody knows this, this wildly polarized conversation. What you don't know, which is what makes it part of tonight's conversation, and we'll get to the implications of this probably toward the middle of the show, is that as part of our studies of ET artifacts on Mars primarily, but also on the moon, we were led to what I call a parallel and extraordinarily suppressed physics, which is this hyper-dimensional physics model. And one of the key significators of the hyper-dimensional model is the concept of a tetrahedron, the first three-dimensional object that you can create in 3D when you go from a point to a line to a three-dimensional object. The first three-dimensional object that the you can create is a tetrahedron, which is composed of four vertices. The angles are 60 degrees, I'm sorry, 120 degrees, and there are four faces and four points or vertices. And when you put that into a spinning sphere, if the sphere represents a planet, the tetrahedral model predicts that something interesting should occur above and below the equator of that sphere at an angle of 19.5 degrees from the equator, either north or south. So we, we kind of use in a shorthand where this connection to ET ruins, which has in the middle of it this recurring redundant message of the physics, and it shows us by the numbers, by the angles, and by the replication endlessly of tetrahedrons, The key number to remember out of all that is 19.5. The reason that I believe this whole 
Trump extravaganza vis-a-vis his indictment and his upcoming trial and the nation and the world being riveted. And you know it's going to obviously wind up, it has to wind up on live television. You can't possibly do this behind a barrier where you don't even get to hear what goes on. Um, That is going to present us with some extraordinary interesting options which may in fact overlap, as you will hear tonight, with our own studies, i.e. the ruins and the physics. Because as you may remember, many years ago we created as part of our uh, Enterprise Mission Imaging Team a video called the uh, Presidential Briefing. And through a backdoor channel, someone who had known the president for like 40 years, I was able to get the presidential briefing um, video directly into President Trump's hands in the White House. And a couple weeks after that, curious things began to happen. Initially, when NASA had come out uh, talking about the Artemis mission and its transmogrification from the previous Bush years um, into efforts to return human beings, Americans, to the moon. Um, The new program, which uh, had been uh, created by um, the uh, uh, Obama administration, was called Artemis, and it had no money, and its projected time frame was the first landings could not occur before 2028. Two weeks after President Trump got our presidential briefing without acknowledgement, without email, without any kind of word, the president himself, President Trump, demanded that the timetable uh, for NASA to get back to the surface of the moon with human beings be moved up to 2024 without any reason except I want to do it at the beginning of my second term. Now, in terms of circumstantial evidence, I really believe that it was based in part on what he saw in our video and what he then saw in NASA's own archives that moved the president, President Trump, remember, to move up the landing so that it would occur sometime at the end of his first term or, God willing, the creek don't rise, in the first year of his second term. This, of course, was all done well before 2020. So, where are we tonight? We have a president indicted for basically taking huge truckloads of super top secret documentation, including maybe files covering what NASA has found in the way of intelligent artifacts on the moon, on Mars, on other places, and he personally took them with him. We now find out for the four years of his administration, most of that time he would take certain boxes with these super top secret documents with him on Air Force One or to Trump Tower or to Bedminster, which is his, his golf course there in, in uh, northern New Jersey. Why, and he also said very bluntly to his lawyer, who has now been uh, forced by the legal Uh, system to uh, turn state's evidence and reveal conversations that normally lawyers are not supposed to be able to reveal. A judge ruled that there was enough evidence 
to basically put his uh, one of his attorneys uh, under oath as a witness before the grand jury. And this um, uh, lawyer, his name is uh, Corcoran, he transcribed notes which reveal that at one point the president, President Trump, looked at him and says, those are my boxes. I don't want anyone looking through my boxes. I don't want you looking through my boxes. Now that we know the contents of the boxes, which are basically in the indictment, I have found something absolutely astonishing and confirming regarding our model that maybe, just maybe, the president took more than the nation's top nuclear secrets. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, Jonathan Womack, Georgia Lambert, and Kinthea discuss artwork on two worlds, on Earth and on the moon. And does Donald Trump actually know all about this? Because it's in the files? We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, June 17th of 2023. Let me tell you one real factual reason why I'm strongly suspecting that everything we're going to hear over the next year, year and a half about the Trump indictment and the arraignment and the trial and all of this incredible, unprecedented soap opera is standing in front of some higher level secret or maybe to be revealed connection 
to what's out there. What if Trump did not decide to make all this public, but decide to just basically take it with him and sit on it until the appropriate time? And everyone can judge for themselves what appropriate means in this uh, uh, context. I will tell you some very specific facts. In the initial rumors on last Thursday night on, I think it was the 9th of June, that there was going to be a formal indictment, the first person who promulgated this rumor on Truth Social was none other than Donald J. Trump, the ex-president. And he posted his first announcement of his pending indictment, wait for it, at 19.5, 7.30 Eastern Time in Washington, which in military time is 19.5, 19 and a half hours. And in the initial rumors of the uh, uh, charges in the indictment, ultimately there turned out to be 37 or 38, it depends on how you count. But in the original, what he said was he had been or was going to be charged with seven crimes under the Espionage Act. Seven crimes. Now, why is that interesting? Because seven is, of course, the number of spins of a tetrahedron in three dimensions. So my question for everyone who thinks that I'm just beating this, you know, poor dead political horse uh, one more time, what does Trump know about hyperdimensional physics and extraterrestrial ruins and what NASA and the Pentagon and the secret space program and everything we have looked at from the beginning of this show, what does he know? And when did he know it? And did we basically turn him on to something having to do with a much, much larger and most incredibly important for humanity, extraterrestrial truth? So with that, let me bring on Jonathan Womack and Georgia Lambert, and Kintia's there waiting in the wings. Georgia, let me go to you first. I recently found a uh, an old movie. Actually, it's a new movie, and I, I downlinked it, you know, so I can watch it when I have time to watch movies, which I think won an award, won an Academy Award last year called Everything Happening at Once, or Everything Everywhere at Once, or something like that. I have gotten this strong feeling that because of the relationship of the cyclic physics that we've talked about, the processional cycle, the Vedas, um, coming basically to a cyclic uh, climax within the next year or two years or three years by way of you know some calendrical studies, that when we look at any part of this cultural or political or scientific landscape, what we're seeing is tumult and revolution and exposure of things that have been kept secret for decades, if not hundreds of years, if not thousands, or maybe even tens of thousands of years. And the merry-go-round is rotating, of course, coming around. And if we can grab the brass ring, we can climb on this merry-go-round and it's going to take us boldly where no one for maybe 26,000 years has been able to go before. Am I on to something or should I quietly go back and take up knitting? 
Um, only if you knit little sweaters for dogs. Um, <laughs> or even teeny tinier sweaters. Tiny little mice sweaters. <laughs> yes, for yes, dogs. yes. Anyway, um, no, you're right on. Uh, esoterically, we are at a time when there are major cycles and minor cycles all dovetailing into one another. Uh, on major scales, we're obviously moving from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. Uh, in some circles, this is a shift from what is called the age of the sixth ray, which is the energy of aspiration and reaching upward and inward for divinity, to the age of the seventh ray, where that upward aspiration now loops back around and that spirituality that has been accessed is brought to earth thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth that's the big one of the big cycles within that we have echoes of old atlantean stuff come round again at a higher turn of the spiral uh, we've got minor cycles of humanity as a species moving from emotional polarization to the beginnings of true mental polarization. We've got the birth of a new kingdom, the kingdom of conscious souls emerging within humanity. And all of these different cycles at this particular time are dovetailing into one another, which means that this is a very important time to be alive. So you have two choices. One is you go out and meet the day and the future, or you can hide under your bed with a pillow over your ears and go, la, 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 pretend nothing's going on. Well, it's sort of like birthing a baby. The baby's going to come whether the mother's lying in a field or, or in a hospital. Right. Um, it, it depends on how comfortable we want to be and what kind of collateral damage occurs. We are told esoterically that with the changing of this age, we don't have to go through the rising and sinking of continents or great shifts of landmass that has been the case in the distant past, that we can make this more of a conscious transition to a new incarnational time and not forget who we are or forget all our history. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be completely smooth, as we can all see on the world well, stage. Wait, 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 wait. If, if we're in the Kali Yuga, which is the Vedic term for the low part of the cycle where everybody forgets everything and they're barely still human. If we go up from there, the question is, do we ascend smoothly back up the, the Vedic you know, tree of, of other ages, or do we jump like in a frequency split within, within a, a brief period of time, days, hours, months, years, whatever, between the, the nadir, the low point, where we are now, the Kali Yuga, do we, do we leap to the highest one, which is the highest frequency, so suddenly all these things we think of as miracles, which really are just mind over hyperdimensional matter, suddenly is available, if not to everyone, at least to those who are genetically connected enough still to where they can tap into, George Lucas, thank you, the force. Well, that's part of this transition. Uh, we, we know that growth isn't a smooth curve. It, it's, it's jumps and spurts and plateaus. Um, we may not be able to jump to the highest rung here, but we can you make a huge leap forward. Uh, one of the uh, other cycles in all of this business 
is moving from looking at reality as only solids, liquids, and gases to the next level up, which is the realm of the force or the matrix or the etheric circulation of the planet itself, or the, the chronic or vitality. The, or, the, or, or the torsion field. Exactly. I mean, there's many, many different ways of talking about it. Or the ether, it. the ether, I mean. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, that's part of the resistance. Remember, matter doesn't like to change, and it only fusses when it's threatened. And so as we look on the world stage, we're seeing in every corner of human and planetary existence those old crystallized forces that want to stay asleep and don't want to make this leap. But it's inevitable. The question is, how comfortable are we going to make this transition? Well, if, if we kind of expand our, our outlook and we, you know, look at artifacts, solid stuff, you know, can kick the tires metaphorically, that's where Jonathan comes in. Because in this new paradigm era, as we're looking outward, um, Jonathan's finding some pretty amazing stuff. So before we get to the off-world connection, Jonathan, for all the new people that I wangled to come over here tonight from George's show and Clyde's show. We have a lot of new listeners. Why don't you give us a pricey, including connections with radio with pictures, to the work you've been doing in Utah, you and Keith, because it's that place we're going to leap off from, you know, in a little while and take our first look at potential comparative artwork on two worlds on a scale which is mind-boggling to most people. Sure, Richard. Uh, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, this odyssey began when I was very young and noticed some strange things in the American Southwest. And and like most people that go to Arches Park and the other parks and they see things that... Now, Ar <clears throat> Arches Park is in Utah, right? It's a national park? Correct. And a lot of people go there, and, and I know a lot of them see things, and they go, wow, that looks like maybe something. And But it just kind of ends there. And that was my attitude, too. I didn't want to <clears throat> do the deep dive into this because I knew it would be life-changing, and it was just a very momentous thing to take on. And yet I could not let a day go by with these gods being forsaken by us humans when they left all this stuff for us to find and decode and use. The, the gift of the arches is something um, so tremendous and wonderful and joyous. We, I, I just couldn't let it go. You know, I just couldn't go back to bed and go, eh, never mind. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, so when you say gods, and I didn't, I didn't change your, uh, your uh, banner for tonight. I'll let you do it and... You didn't put quotes around the gods. And when I read this to somebody uh, a couple of days ago, they, they kind of freaked out. They said, these guys are not gods. What Didn't everybody watch Stargate, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you mean, Jonathan, when you say gods? Well, for example, when I asked the question, how many solar systems, because I talked about months ago when... Um, you know, I asked the question and then I, I go out of body and... They took me on a little space tour and showed me that wait, these are... Wait, wait, They? Who's they? And there are three uh, beings, three spirits. Um, 
I don't there are some of these people that are sculpting doing all this sculpting and and I, I said how many star systems in the Milky Way are like this that are sculpted and the answer was all of them and it's nebulas as well and it's even the disk of the Milky Way when you look up in the sky at night uh, Richard I was in my brother's cabin at 12,200 feet and when you look up at the night sky it's amazing because you can see the disk of the galaxy and all that and now here I am they're showing me that that's all the same kind of 3D illusory art that they create so it's everywhere so there, that's pretty godlike. Uh, they're so far well, above us. Well, <laughs> remember, Arthur, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable magic. A hyperdimensional technology to a 3D person would look like godlike powers, but it's it's just evolution in a larger frame. At least that's what I... Uh, Georgia, please help me out here. Well... It, it's really interesting when, when in art school you learn to do portraits, for instance. The first thing you have to learn is not to paint yourself. Because one of the things about art is whatever art the artist produces has qualities of the creator. Oh. And, and so it's whether that is geometry or color or design or whatever it happens to be uh, it's very hard not to put yourself in the faces that you're drawing so that that's that you have to unlearn remember the work of Schwaller so wait when, 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 when you're at a blank canvas and you're in one of these classes where a whole bunch of people are standing around in front of blank canvases and the, the, the teacher tells you, oh, you draw this or draw that, or basically gives you themes. Do people tend to, if they try to do human faces, do they kind of paint their own face from subliminal memory, having looked in the mirror for decades? Yes. yes wow. They do. And, and not only that, I mean, forget mirrors. Remember the work of Schwaller de Lubitsch, where he looked at the ground plan of Egyptian temples and he superimposed it with the art, the bas-reliefs uh, of the Egyptian pharaohs and then bas-reliefed it again with actual anatomy. All temples are metaphors for the human body, the human frame. So it's very interesting when we're starting to think about art from other places it may be their signature. In other words, for instance, here, we've got the golden section that defines construction here. That may be true in other places, but it may not be. And mm. so, you know, for instance, uh, remember the, the, the bar in Star Wars where you walked in and there were all these oh, different Oh, yeah, the, the infamous bar scene, yes. Ultimately with this understanding, you would be able to look at a critter and know exactly what system they're from oh. because their body mirrors the geometry oh. of the system they're from. Well, really the physics of the system they're from. Yeah, exactly. How interesting. Okay, John, so are you holding to the idea that these guys whose artwork you've been looking at are real gods, meaning 
they've somehow had a hand in our creation or are using the term more metaphorically like uh, as Arthur Clarke? No, I believe they had a hand in the creation of the solar system and <clears throat> all of the beings that are in this solar system. Okay. You know we're going to find out someday. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. That's the amazing thing. We're going to find out. I, I, I cannot communicate more strongly this incredible feeling after 40 or 50 years that I've been at this, able to sit here tonight and know that under the agency that I have worked for, uh, and part of a, a you know government for more than any other agency, NASA, they officially are going to be opening the door to look at all of this because it's like my grandmother when she used to do quilts. If you do a quilt wrongly, if you knit one, purl one wrongly, and you got this loose thread and you pull it, which I did one day, oh, that was not a good idea, the whole damn thing will fall apart. There's no part of this that's not going to be connected all the way from kick the tires machines on other worlds, starting with the moon, to this ineffable artwork, which frankly, I have some evidence that you don't even need to be in a body to do artwork in 3D. And that's a, that's a real discovery for me over the last several years. Richard, you know, when you read the quote about um, uh, the the guy from NASA yeah, Dr. saying, Grinspoon. yeah, that um, it was now okay to look for alien artifacts throughout the solar system. Mm. What struck me is it also means here on Earth. Oh, of course. And that's why I wanted John on tonight. So let me stop. I'll stop interrupting. Thank you, John. So you're wandering around the Southwest. You see all this incredible stuff that 99.99% of the tourists go, boy, look at the amazing things erosion can do. <laughs> and through your eyes and through Keith Morgan's eyes, you look at it and you say, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> because it's... Uh, it's like the the author of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, he said that, uh, what does he call it? Someone else's problem. And it, when you see something that's so far out of your frame of reference that it seems impossible, the mind ignores it. Yeah, he says it can't be. It can't be. Yeah, this can't be. And indeed, it is it's so astronomically vast. Well, one of the cliches around here, you know, is if you can't imagine it, you can't see it. And for 99.99999% of the people that went to Arches Park, including my grandparents, and shot Kodachrome slides and stereo pictures, you know, Viewmaster, they could no more have imagined us having this conversation tonight that they can imagine that their you know, grandson was a Martian. Anyway, please continue. Ah, uh, yes. I, I another thought I had was, you know, down the road, some years from now, when this all comes out, and these people's faces. See, I've come to know these folks that are depicted in this artwork and these massive geoglyphs, and all the way down to ground level. Um, they're going to look back on today and they're they're going to say how is it that humans took so long to see this stuff and part of it is because we have been so conditioned 
by mainstream archaeologists and say maybe NASA or just people tell us this is erosion and and people accept that and then when you find out that that's a lie it's going to be very hard to convince people otherwise but in time this will become known and uh, these people faces their face are going to be as familiar to everyone as they are to me so wherever I look now I just go oh my god you mentioned Jupiter the other night we were talking on the phone so I of course I had to go look at it Yeah, amazing art with these rotating bands of, of gas. And so when you talk about Jupiter, the Jovian system, you don't mean artwork on the moons. You mean artwork in the clouds of Jupiter. That's correct. See, if you'd said that even like a year ago, I would have raised an eyebrow in very Spockian fashion. I would have gently potted you down and we would have segued <laughs> to anything but I have, I have a physics framework where I frankly think that I can see your Jovian artwork and raise you an ancient supernova remnant. Mm. In other words, I've been finding, Georgia, please help here. I've been finding this extraordinary uh, gargantuan, cyclopean, you know, gods between the stars kind of artwork in places that would be totally beyond any conventional Newtonian 3D dynamics and physics. But once you allow the idea that consciousness in a higher dimension interacting with material stuff in this dimension can do things on a scale that looks like God's and has some of the aspects of the forcing function that would be needed to create these creations, it opens up such doorways. I guarantee you, most of the people on planet Earth tonight, they're not ready for this yet. That's our job. Well, one of the things that... that strikes me in this conversation at this point is that the division between architecture, geometry, and art, those divisions don't exist. It's all the same thing. You know, with the discovery of fractals, if you and your listeners remember the Mandelbrot set, the Mandelbrot set in fractals looks like a sitting Buddha. Oh, that's right, it does. Absolutely. And and when it's broken down, it still has that Buddha in the lotus posture shape. And so the idea of separating architecture and art is a fallacy. It, it all goes together. There is no geometry and architecture without art. But if you're going to try to act, you know, analyze it from the, from the back end, not knowing who the creator was, who the artist was, it's so much easier to identify the rectilinear stuff than it is the art because the artwork can be anything and and the, and the and the accusation of pareidolia which i always you know mispronounce the idea that you're projecting you're seeing things you know rabbits and clouds that kind of thing it becomes almost impossible to analytically separate the two ends of the spectrum because they ultimately grade together 
and without being connected to where you know at a higher dimensional level this is art this is entropy it it to the outsider the people who are not into this way of thinking that's going to be probably one of the biggest hurdles that we have to cross fortunately i may have an answer later in the show for where nasa can go to kind of bring resolution but we'll get to that in a minute Sorry, remember, I just... remember that the Freemasons call God the great architect, the grand architect of the universe. Oh, yeah. John? Yeah, there's also the technology aspect where these structures on the moon and all over the Earth and Mars and so forth, there's this wondrous technology that's part of it, and it's far beyond <clears throat> anything we have. So I'm little by little decoding the arches and the technology behind it. And um, finding the moon connection was a big step because that seems to be a kind of actuator, a cyclic actuator of the arches. Okay, before we get to the moon, you know, we're down basically at the bottom of the hour. No, we're at the top of the hour. i got to look at the right clock here. Um I'm going to give you an uninterrupted time on the other side of this break, but do us a tease. How did you get from looking at Arches Park to having that that epiphany where you said to yourself one day, wait a minute, this is an erosion? Well, I knew it was erosion when I I saw Keith's vacation photos, but um, when I knew the moon was involved was when I was uh, gazing through the delicate arch because it frames a wait, number wait, wait, of... Wait, maybe I didn't make myself clear. Your model is that somebody physically did the stuff in Arches Park, right? Oh, yes. Or a set of somebody's. Yes. Now, that's not erosion. It has, no. it has been eroded after it was turned into art, but the but the substrate, the materials are the sandstones and the the other rocks that are occurring there in Arches Park, right? Correct. Okay. When you say consciousness does it with a sophisticated technology, at some point that technology, because of the hyperdimensional nature, grades directly into the physics and mental control with no, as a Forbidden Planet would say, instrumentality required. Right? Yeah, the blueprint is, is created in higher dimensions, and then they manifest it into time-space. Okay, hold it there. My guest this morning is uh, John Womack and Georgia Lambert, and Kinthea will join us. She's working on a time crunch project, so she will probably join us later in the show. I want her art input as well, because if you've seen any of her art, Wow. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. I'm talking to you from the AD paradigm that there could be artifacts created by intelligence, not only in terms of physics and technology, but by the mind alone. And when we get to that evidence, you better bet fasten your seatbelts. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.